The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. It's good to see you this morning. If you're new here, welcome to Temple Bible Church. My name is Chase. I'm one of the pastors here. We got a lot of great encouragement from Claude last week. I'm so happy that that was a blessing to you as he talked to us about the gospel and the nations. Today, we will talk about the gospel and adoption. Our speaker actually grew up at Temple Bible Church. His dad was a worship pastor here for a while, and then he went on to Texas A&M University, and you guys need something to be happy about this weekend. And uh, he went on to Texas A&M University and then planted a church with Acts 29 Network, and now he is the director of church initiatives for the Christian Alliance for Orphans. He's written Bible studies, writes, and speaks nationally. Would you guys give a good welcome home to Jason Johnson? Good morning. It's an honor to be here. It's strange to be here. The last time I was here was half my life ago. I was 18 years old, uh, and I knew, I knew everything, and I knew nothing at the same time. Went off. I did know enough to know that I needed to go to Texas A&M, and that's, if you don't know anything else, amen. We had a rough weekend, but uh, the Aggie spirit never dies. So it is an honor to be here for several different reasons, one of which uh, includes the fact that um, my dad used to lead worship here, and I used to sit on the front row and watch him and, and learn under him and always knew that uh, I, on some level, I would be involved in ministry in large part because of his influence. And I think at that time, the stage was over there. Everything is different now. It's a very different church. But um, uh, it's just a big circle of life, right? Sometimes we're grateful for that circle of life. Things kind of come back around. Uh, and here we are. And sometimes we wish the circle of life would stop, right? Like just stop spinning. But uh, for this, I'm incredibly grateful. I'm grateful because I know that you have a man and Gary who stands up here week in and week out and faithfully proclaims the Word of God to you, and has done that for many, many years. And so it's always an honor of mine uh, to accept the trust of a man like that, to stand where he stands, uh, and to fill those shoes. And so I'm grateful uh, that you have a pastor like that. Uh, we live in College Station now, uh, which just, everything you dream that it is, it's that much and more. It's incredible. We just love being around the students. We love the energy. Uh, we love it. And small world, the circle of life, we live right around the corner from uh, Sarah, Gary's daughter, uh, who I was friends with in high school. So now here we are within walking distance of each other, raising our, our families and our kids next to each other. So the circle of life finds us here today, and it's an honor to be here. What I want to do today is I want us to begin to paint a picture, and I want us to frame that picture before we actually take a look at what that picture is. And as we think about orphan care and we think about adoption and we even think about foster care, uh, we see this picture in Scripture illustrated for us, this beautiful picture of the gospel, but around that picture is the gospel itself. And so what we're going to do is we're going to frame this whole issue in the gospel, and then we're going to conclude our time by looking at what the picture actually reveals to us within that frame. And what we'll find to be true is that it's not only the gospel which frames our understanding around this and why we would be involved in this, but it's also the gospel which is put on display through this picture that's being painted into the world around us. And so if there's one thing that rings true from the very beginning to the very end of this whole issue, it's this, is that the gospel is what compels us into it. 
The gospel is ultimately what sustains us in the midst of it when it's hard. You see, the gospel never guarantees that anything will be easy. As a matter of fact, Jesus is very clear in Scripture that this life is going to be hard. But it will never be without hope and it will never be without purpose. You see, the gospel always provides context around our struggles and meaning to our purpose. And so as it compels us into hard places, it never leaves us without hope. And then in the end, it's ultimately what's put on display is the beautiful story that God is telling from the very beginning to the very end of time that we have the privilege to be a part of here today. As we look back through Scripture, we see these pieces of imagery that God uses to help us understand the essence and the gravity and the nature of the gospel. It's as if God said, how can I help my, my people, my, my human beings with their human minds and their limited capacity, how can I help them understand this big, rich, theological, conceptual idea of their salvation? How can I help them understand it in a very practical, tangible way, a way that will be a daily reminder for them even, that this is a picture down here that points us to something greater up here. And so you can see through Scripture that God uses human authors inspired by the Holy Spirit to give us these pieces of imagery throughout Scripture to help us understand the big concepts of our salvation in the gospel. In the New Testament, Paul uses the body, the physical body, as a piece of imagery. In essence, he says that we were once outside of the body of Christ, and now we have been grafted into the body of Christ, and it's because of the work of Jesus that that shift has happened. We've been grafted in as ears and as eyes and as hands and as feet. All of us are different, unique, diverse components coming together to form the body of Christ. We are now described in Scripture as the body of Christ, and Jesus is our head. This is a piece of imagery that's woven throughout the New Testament to help us understand this big theological concept of the gospel. It's this physical, tangible reminder to us of what it means for us to be outside of the body and now to be inside of the body. You can literally look around the room right now. You can elbow somebody next. You can reach out and touch and feel and even smell. I don't recommend that, but you can smell. You can smell and see and touch and feel and experience in a tangible way the gospel even here in the room this morning. Because we are the body of Christ collectively brought together. There is no other explanation as to why you and I would get up, put on a little nicer clothes than we normally wear, drive to church and sit here like we do, other than Jesus has done something that's brought us together. And it reminds us of that. Another piece of imagery in Scripture that's used to point us to the gospel in a very practical, tangible way is the imagery of marriage, the relationship between husband and wife that we are now described as and known as the bride of Christ. And he is our bridegroom who's preparing a place for us in his father's house that he will one day come and take us back into the eternal uh, wedding and marriage and celebration and the feast with him forever, that we are the bride of Christ. Paul takes that in the New Testament and says, just like that, Husbands and wives are to mutually love one another, mutually sacrifice for one another. Husbands are to lay their lives down for their wives as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for it. That's the gospel. And that when we do that, when, when marriage works and is, 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 is conducted in the way that God intended it to be conducted, it's this physical, tangible expression of this beautiful spiritual reality. It points us to and it reminds us of the gospel. And if you're married, you understand the gospel more than you probably even understand that you do. 
Because marriage is this consistent, simultaneous uh, exchange of being reminded how selfish I am as a sinner, but always being met by, by grace from my wife. I knew I was a little punk when I got married. I knew I didn't know what I was talking about. I knew that I didn't know a whole lot. But I didn't know the depths of the gravity of just how awful I could be until I had uh, a beautiful woman that was that constantly, not in her own words, but because of my own doing, revealed back to me, gosh, I'm selfish. I am selfish and I am self-centered, but I'm constantly met by grace from this woman, and that's the gospel. The gospel does two things at the same time. It, it, it reveals our sin for what it is in no uncertain terms, and then it always meets us with grace. That's marriage that's the gospel. It points us to this bigger, beautiful picture of the work of Jesus. We have the body of Christ. We have the bride of Christ. Another piece of imagery that runs throughout the, the current of Scripture is this imagery of adoption. It's this family imagery. It's this imagery that we were once outside of the family of God, because, but now because of the work of Jesus, we've been brought into the family of God, that we are now sons and daughters of him. We can refer to him as father. Even Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, our father who art in heaven. That statement should cause us pause, significant pause, that we now, because of Jesus, have the capacity to, to refer to God as father and to be known as dearly loved children of him. The imagery of adoption is used throughout Scripture to point us to this bigger, grander spiritual reality. My favorite place where this imagery is used is in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, when Paul begins to write this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman and born under the law. Let's stop right there. This is my favorite Christmas passage. Encapsulated in this very short, succinct statement is the essence of what we celebrate at Christmas. Can you believe next month is Christmas? That's just wild, right? But you and I know that it's not isolated to December 25th. We celebrate this truth as a reality all the time, every day of the year. But what we celebrate at Christmas is ultimately that in the fullness of time had come, God sent his son that was born of a woman and born under the law. What the language of, of this statement is conveying in the idea of the fullness of time and uh, the better translation might be at just the right time. That's what it's suggesting here. It's painting this picture for us that's saying this, look, throughout all the course of human history, in God's divine providence and sovereignty, he decided right now is just the right time to interject himself into the broken story of humanity. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, that God would step out of glory, wrap himself in humanity, and be born as an infant and become a part of our story. This passage screams to us so much about the character of God. It also screams to us about the actions of God. It tells us who God is, and it tells us what God does. It says that God is the kind of God that when he looks down on the plight of his people, he's compelled to respond. And when God is compelled to respond, God doesn't respond in mediocre, haphazard ways. God responds in dramatic, world-shifting, life-changing ways. God's not the kind of God that says, I see your brokenness, I see your plight, I see, I see the position that you're in. Now, if you could just get your act together enough, clean yourself up enough, then maybe one day you can go from where you are and you can come to be where I am. That's not the kind of God that we serve. The kind of God that Paul is writing about in Galatians chapter 4 is the kind of God that says, I see your brokenness, I see your plight, I see you where you are, 
and I'm coming after you. I'm coming after you. And you better believe that when God says, I see you where you are and I'm coming after you, God is going to get you. And so you might be in this room this morning and that's all that you need to hear this morning. You don't need to hear anything else that we say other than you know God's coming after you. And maybe this morning you just simply need to say, you got me. That's it. That the essence of the gospel is that God sees us where we are and he is coming after us and he interjects himself into our story at just the right time. Most of us in this room could look back and our testimony would be something along those lines. We would say, this is who I was, this is how I was living, this is, this is what I was engaged in, but then God interjected himself into my story, Jesus became a part of my story, and at just the right time, he did. At just the right time, God grabbed my heart. That's our stories, because that's the story of the gospel. That's just what God does. That's just who he is. He sees our plight. He doesn't remain on the peripherals. He interjects himself into it, and he changes everything as a result. I don't know about you, but I'm really good at compartmentalizing my faith. That's not a thing to be proud about, right? And I might be the only one in this room, but I'm really good at saying, God, I believe you over here, but not sure that you know what you're doing over here. You with me? When it comes to who I am as a person and who we are as people, what we see in the gospel is this comprehensive shift of everything. That there's no part of who we are that goes untouched or unaffected by Jesus. Our past, our present, our future, everything about us is radically shifted because at just the right time, he interjected himself into our stories. But if you're like me, you're really good at saying things like this. God, uh, I believe you've forgiven me of my past. I'm, I'm good with that. But I'm not sure that you've really got my present under control. Like we've, we've got some issues there. Or maybe, God, you've been abundantly gracious to me. Your evidence of grace in my life right now is clear, but I'm really concerned about whether or not you're going to take care of things in the future. And I don't know where you are on that spectrum, but for me, I float around, and I'm really good at compartmentalizing. But here's the truth of the gospel, is that there's no part of who we are that goes untouched or unaffected by the work of Jesus. Him saying, I see you where you are and I'm coming after you, I'm interjecting myself into your story, produces this comprehensive shift in all aspects of who we are. And we begin to see him outline that in verse 5 when he says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption, there's that word now, as sons. So now we begin to see that God is the kind of God that interjects himself into our stories at just the right time, and he produces these comprehensive results in our lives. He, in our past, he redeems us from out from underneath the weight of the law. Scripture is very clear about what the consequences and the ramifications of being under the law was for us. That we were condemned under the weight of a law that we could not live up to. It describes us as having odds and enmity between us and God. It even goes so far as to say that we were by nature objects of the wrath of God. Now look, I've grown up in ministry home. I've grown up. I went off to seminary. I've uh, done the pastoring thing. And let me tell you, I have no idea to the fullest, uh, fullest extent what it means to be the object of the wrath of God. But I do know enough to know this. It is really, really bad. And that's what Paul is suggesting. Look, 
your past context was so broken and so destitute and so, uh, so fatally flawed by your sin that you were living under condemnation. But here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. Notice verse 4. At the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman and born where? Under the law. Why? Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. How great is that? That now God's not only the kind of God that sees our plight, interjects himself into it at just the right time, and begins to produce this comprehensive shift in our lives, but he's also the kind of God that interjects himself into our story, and he meets us exactly where we are. Condemned under the weight of a law we could not live up to, Jesus was born under that law. He met us where we were and redeemed us out of it. He took that condemnation on himself that in this comprehensive nature of the gospel, our past has been decisively dealt with. It has been dealt a fatal death blow. That sin is gone, the old is gone, and the new has come. I am now no longer defined by my broken past. I am now no longer defined by the condemnation of my sin. Jesus has taken all of that. But it doesn't end there. Verse 6, he continues. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of a son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so my past has been decisively dealt with, but now my present reality is one where I am identified as a son, as a child of God. And I've been given the Holy Spirit within me, who's implanted himself within me and has now given me the capacity to cry out to God and refer to God as Abba, Father. That word Abba is, is a variation of the word Father, but it's, it's best understood in a very tender and affectionate way. It's the difference between my four daughters calling me Father, in a very British, cold, proper accent, I imagine, right? Versus them calling me Daddy, which is what they do call me. Four daughters calling me Daddy. You can imagine how that usually goes, right? They get far more than they really need. I give them what they want, because I'm Daddy, Right? That's a significantly different posture. That's a significantly different relationship. They don't call anybody else daddy but me. And what Paul is suggesting here is this, that we have moved from a past where our relationship with God was once defined by odds and enmity, and now our present reality, our relationship with God is defined by intimacy and affection. A monumental, comprehensive shift. What it means for us today in the present is this, is that God is not angry with us. God is not disappointed in us. God is not embarrassed by us because that's not what a good daddy does. We don't have to be afraid of how God's going to respond to us because in Jesus, we know exactly how God's going to respond to us like a good daddy would with grace and compassion and even discipline because Scripture says that he disciplines us because he loves us like a father. You see, in our past, we had to be afraid of God. How's he going to respond to me? Because I'm, I'm fatally flawed by sin. I'm under his condemnation. But now in my present, I don't have to be afraid. I can bring my failures. I can bring my weaknesses. I can bring my concerns and my anxieties to his throne and know exactly how he's going to respond to me like a good daddy would. He's not angry with us. All the anger of God has been poured out on the back of Jesus already. It's been dealt with. We can now approach him with full confidence, knowing that like a good daddy, he will love us and show compassion and grace to us. But it doesn't end there. Verse 7. So now you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir through God. 
my past has been redeemed, my present reality has been altered, and the future trajectory of my life has been shifted for all of eternity. I'm an heir of God. An heir is someone who lives today with the confidence and the assurance of what's to come tomorrow. Scripture says that we've been given a deposit guaranteeing today what's to come tomorrow. It says that while our outward bodies waste away today, our inward souls long for and groan for the glory that will be revealed one day. We live today as heirs of the glory that is to come. That's the confidence and the assurance and the steadiness that we have today. Have you noticed that our world is full of irony? We all know this. This, we're politically offended by this, but not this. This is socially unacceptable, but not this. This doesn't make sense, right? One of the greatest ironies that I see playing out in our world today is this, this, this conflict between the world wants us to love the world. We know that. It wants us to be immersed in the world, to love the things of the world. The world wants us to love the world, but the world also simultaneously wants us to be afraid of the world. Do you notice this? Have you noticed this fear, this fear messaging which exists in our world? We're obsessed with, with the apocalypse. We're obsessed with how things are going to end. We're obsessed with 24-hour news stations, that everything's breaking news and the latest crisis and the latest disease that a couple people have that's going to wipe out the entire world. So watch out, right? We're obsessed with the next economic downturn that's going to have us all eating beans and rice out of the gutter tomorrow. So hunker down today, right? We're obsessed with the next politician who's the Antichrist that's going to destroy us all. And everything is big, bold, capital letters on the ticker at the bottom of 24-hour news stations. Be very afraid is what it should say. Be very afraid because of the stocks. Be very afraid because of this or that or the other. If you go to a movie these days, so many of the previews of movies that are coming out are apocalyptic in nature. Have you noticed this theme? We're obsessed with this and Hollywood jumps all over it. It's an ex-earthquake that's going to destroy San Francisco and then split the United States in half. We're all going to sink into this melting pot of doom, right? But praise God that Dwayne the Rock Johnson is going to be there to save us, right? <laughs> like, really? Him? Why did we make that guy famous? That's our fault. That's on us. I think we're going to go. This has nothing to do with anything. I think we're going to stand before God one day. And in part, he's going to say, your sins have been forgiven. You're welcome into heaven because of Jesus. But I have a question for you. Why did you keep making certain these people famous? Like, Miley, really? We're making her famous? Why? That's on us. Anyway, these people are going to come in and save us, but you need to be really, really afraid. We're obsessed with zombies on cable and vampires, right? That's just the really strange world that we live in. We're in the middle. We're about to start a year-long marathon presidential campaign. Most of us are sick of it. We're like, we're done, right? Just let us know how it ends up, right? But notice the messaging. Notice the theme. The message is fear. You need to be afraid of how things are going to turn out unless, if you don't elect me. You need to be afraid. Elect me or your worst nightmares are going to come true. We are obsessed with the future and we are scared of it. But not you and I. Not those who have had everything about us comprehensively shifted and changed because of Jesus. Not you and I that live today with the confidence and the assurance of what's to come tomorrow. We are not afraid. We know that in the end, Jesus wins over all of this. So we live today with the confidence and the assurance of what's to come tomorrow. You and I live in neighborhoods and work in offices and sit in classrooms and sit on the sidelines of our kids' sporting events Surrounded by people who are afraid. They're buying into the fear. 
And they need to see us not afraid. And we need to be able to tell them why we're not afraid. And we need to be able to, to tell them that because in the end, Jesus wins. Jesus wins over all of this. We can live today with the confidence and the assurance of what's to come tomorrow. It doesn't excuse us from certain responsibilities in terms of making our world a better place. It actually compels us into them because we want to prepare people for what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back and makes all things new. And so let's practice that now. Our past has been decisively dealt with. Our present has been radically shifted and altered. And the future trajectory of our lives has literally been changed for all eternity because of the work of Jesus at just the right time, interjecting himself into our brokenness, taking our brokenness upon himself, and radically changing everything as a result. This is the frame around which our care of the orphaned, the marginalized, the abused, the abused and the neglected is ultimately exists and thrives, and it's the context in which you and I are being called on some level and in some capacity to do for these kids exactly what Jesus has done for us. That we look down on the plight of these kids and no longer remain at a distance, but say, I see your brokenness and I interject myself into it. And everything that you've ever known in terms of insecurity and abuse and neglect and, and instability in your past context is now done. It's over. I take that on myself and we begin to write a new story that your past, you have been redeemed from your past context. Your present reality now is marked by safety and security and provision and protection and love the way that a child is intended to be loved. And the future trajectory of your life is radically shifted for all of eternity because of it. That what you and I are being not only mandated to do, but being given the privilege to do is to interject ourselves into the stories of these kids just like Jesus interjected himself into ours. And to produce these, these consequential effects in their lives, which very much mirror the consequential effects of the gospel in our lives. You see, the parallels between the gospel and orphan care are beautiful and vivid and unending. That we have the privilege to do for them exactly what Jesus has done for us. But here's the truth in the room this morning. Is that not all of us are called to do the same thing. But all of us are capable of doing something. That's what the uniqueness of the body of Christ brings to bear. Is that some of us may be called in some arenas and some of us may be led in others, but all of us collectively come together and say, together we are going to declare that in the lives of these kids, everything needs to change. And that might mean for you that God is calling you to open your home to a child through adoption, through foster care. And you know who you are. Maybe God's already been speaking that into your heart. And for whatever concerns you've had, they've been hesitations and you just haven't acted on it. Maybe you haven't even shared it with anybody. And maybe it's now time for you to say, that's just what we need to do. No more playing around. No more excusing ourselves. I find that a lot of people say when the, the story is, um, maybe one day, maybe one day we'll do this. Maybe one day. Maybe one day when our kids are old enough, we have enough money right? Life is slowed down enough. I've, the older I get, the more I find those three things actually never happen, right? You never actually get there. But in your pursuit of getting there, like three other things come, come around. You're like, well, dang, we were almost there and then these things happened. I guess we have to delay it more. And here's the truth. You're never going to get to that place. You're never fully ready to be married. You notice that? My wife and I live in a town with 60,000 college students. 
And half of them, when they hit their senior year, uh, man, we better get, I better find my spouse before I leave this place or I'm doomed forever, right? So they're all romantic. They're all in love. We lead a small group of engaged couples. And, and one of the first things we tell them is, uh, you know, they want to know how do we do all these things, and we can help them. But the point is this. You're never fully ready. You're just kind of ready enough. And then you trust that the power of God is greater than the foolishness of the two of you coming together. Like, that's marriage, right? That's what we celebrate at weddings. <laughs> That we stand in front of all our friends and family and say, oh dear God, right? We're trusting in you. We know we love each other and that's all that we need. We're trusting the rest to God. You're never fully ready for some of the biggest decisions we have to make. Are you ever fully ready to have your own children? Gosh, no. You're just ready enough. Some of you in this room need to say, you know what? Ready enough is enough for us now. But others of you in this room need to say, you know what? We may not be led to bring a child into our home, and we've always felt like maybe that means there's no space for us in this. Maybe we don't really have a part to play, and that could not be further from the truth. There are some people in this room that are being called to adopt, and then there's other people in this room that need to financially pay for it, because that's how the body of Christ works. Some are eyes and some are ears, some are hands, some are toes, some are feet. Paul in Romans chapter 12 puts it this way, as in one body we have many members, the members don't all have the same function. We don't have the same function. We can't. If we were all a bunch of right feet, we would literally run in circles all day long and never get anything done. We don't have the same function because we can't have the same function. That's not how the body works. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. How great is that? That we are members of each other. I don't know most of you, but I am more intricately dependent and intertwined with you than we could ever possibly imagine. We are members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. We're not all called to do the same thing. But we're all called on some level and capable in some capacity of doing something. Some of us are ears, some are eyes, some are hands, some are feet. We all collectively as the body can come around and say, we want to do for these kids exactly what Jesus has done for us. It could look like this. There might be a family that brings children into their home. And then what that family requires is a bunch of other families wrapping around them saying, we're going to financially support you. You know what? You, know, you want to know what drives me crazy? This is the little soapbox. Um, I'll get on Facebook or social media, and I'll see families who are trying to adopt doing these fundraisers. They're selling T-shirts. They're selling cupcakes. They're selling, they're selling whatever it is they're selling to raise money to try to desperately adopt a kid. And I think, you know what? I want to be a part of a church that nobody who wants to adopt has to raise money on Facebook because the money is already here. Somebody just needs to give it. Let's be that kind of body that I might not be called to adopt, but I can certainly financially support those who are. And you better believe no one who's adopting would consider that to be less significant than what they're doing. Or maybe I just cook meals. When a new baby is brought into a home or a new child, Let's cook meals. Let's have a meal calendar for them. Maybe a bunch of guys say, you know what? These people are fostering. They've got all these hoops they got to jump through. Let's just remove one little responsibility that they have in their lives right now. We're going to take care of their yard. Just take one little thing off their plate. The opportunities to get involved are as endless and as diverse as each individual person in this room. What has God uniquely resource you with? What has he uniquely impassioned you with? What assets has he given you for the common good? I met a guy in Kansas not too long ago that he's retired, he loves horses, and so whenever the local equestrian center that does equine therapy for kids from hard places, 
whenever they need their horses taken care of or reshoed, he goes out there and he volunteers his time and he does that. Those kids never know that he does that. No one will ever know that he does that, but that's what he does because he says, that's a small thing that I can do. I met a guy in Nebraska not so long ago that uh, he says, I cook the best uh, barbecue in Nebraska. I'm like, great. Well, that's, that's like saying that's like saying you cook macaroni in Texas, right? Because Texas is, we're the barbecue people. So your best barbecue in Nebraska is still, but okay, I understand what you're saying. He said, so, you know, he said, so here's what I do. When a new foster or adoptive placement comes into a home in, in our church, uh, I coordinate the meals and I help cook meals because that's just something that I can do. I love to do that. How has God uniquely wired you? Some of you need to say, you know what? We need to bring a child into our home. Some of you need to say, you know what? That's the absolute worst thing we could do for that child. We do not need to bring a kid into our home. Everybody <laughs> loses. But here's the truth. There are literally hundreds of kids right here within a stone's throw of this church that need safe homes. And if this church isn't the one to provide them, then who's going to? That's just the harsh reality of the world that we live in. Everybody's got a role to play. Everybody can do something. We're not all called to the same thing. In some way and on some level, we all have the capacity and the calling to interject ourselves into brokenness and to change everything as a result. You know that we don't live in a world the way that God really intended it to be. It's fatally flawed. We know that. We know that because things which are normal today were not normal in God's ideal creation. Some things which have become normative today and even legal today is not the way that God intended it to be. You know that we live in a fatally flawed rhythm of life when things which are normal today were abnormal in God's creation. Or things which are abnormal, weird, strange today are actually the way that God intended it to be all along. Like us gathering here in the world's eyes, this is abnormal. But no, the gathering of the people of God is normal in God's ideal creation. You look back all the way into the very beginning of Genesis, you see that this trend begins to set itself in the rhythm of our world in a couple of different ways. My wife and I, a year and a half ago, we bought, uh, we bought a, a, an acre in College Station and built on it. And when we moved in, you know, we needed to clear some brush because I'm a city. I, my idea of camping is downtown hotel. That's me, right? But here we are in College Station. We got an acre and there's some brush that needs to be cleared. And that's, as a man, that's just what you do. You clear brush. I have no idea why, but I go out there and we're clearing brush and we're just getting ripped up by thorns, massive thorn vines spanning the, the height of the trees. And I'm reminded in, the, in that, that number one, this is why I like hotels downtown. And number two, this is not the way it's supposed to be. When I read the account of Genesis, I see that the sin comes down on, the sin enters, the curse comes down on man, and the curse of man is you're going to work the soil, and the soil is going to work against you. It's going to be hard. That's what he says. And then on top of that, there's going to be thorns and thistles on vines and branches. So it suggests to me that there were no such thing as thorns and thistles in the Garden of Eden, God's ideal creation. Sin fractured everything, and now when you work, you're going to have to be afraid of getting poked and prodded and scraped and cut. It's evidence that this is not how it's supposed to be. The fact that you and I can't hold a rose, a symbol of beauty and love in our culture today, without fear of being hurt by it, that's not how it's supposed to be. We should not be afraid that beautiful things might hurt us. Another example of how this is not how it's supposed to be, but it's normal today, is the fact that every one of us in this room, as far as I can tell, are fully clothed. None of us are naked. I imagine you wouldn't have made it in the room. You wouldn't have made it in the building. You probably wouldn't have made it, you know, past the parking lot. 
right? But the fact that all of us sit in this room fully clothed, none of us are naked, bear with me, is not the way that it's supposed to be. Bear with me. Genesis, Adam and Eve are in the garden naked and unashamed. No shame. Why would there be shame? We don't know any other way. This is just how it's supposed to be. Sin enters the picture. Their immediate instinctual response is to cover themselves. And from that moment on, throughout all the course of human history, people just like you and I have gotten up every day. We've gone to our dresser. We've gone to our closet. And we have, in effect, chosen what today's shame coverings are going to be. It is a constant, physical, daily reminder that this world is not as it should be, and it is in desperate need of Jesus. There's another rhythm in our culture that is true and is normal and is the base reality of the world in which we live that is not the way it's supposed to be. And that rhythm of our culture, that normative aspect of our culture is this, is that every day, right here in your own county, Children are being removed from homes that are dangerous for them. Abused and neglected, terrified kids. And they're being brought, uh, in large parts, into government buildings and offices, desperately trying to find families, but there's a lack thereof. That's normal. That is not the way it's supposed to be. And you and I have the privilege and the mandate to step into that and say everything changes now. That we care for the abused and the neglected and the orphaned because we've been cared for by Jesus. We seek justice for them because justice has been fought for and won for us in Him. We rescue them from their plights because we are not the rescuers, but we are the rescued. And Jesus is the one who rescues. And we adopt because we are the adopted ones in Him. And in so doing, we put on display in a very pure and undefiled way This beautiful telling of the gospel in our lives and into the lives of the kids around us. That's why in James chapter 127, it suggests to us that one of the purest, most undefiled demonstrations and expressions of the gospel is to care for the marginalized, the orphaned, the destitute, the widowed, the helpless, and the hopeless. Why? Because as we interject ourselves into their story, we put on display within this frame this beautiful, vivid, clear, brilliant, pure, and undefiled picture of the gospel. That the answer as to why would you do that, why would you give up the comfort and engage in the brokenness of these kids' story, the only answer that we have is Jesus. In a pure and undefiled way, it puts on display the story of the gospel. See, orphan care is less about pulling a child out of a broken context uh, into our comfortable one. It's more about us being pulled into their broken story, having their broken story break us, and affecting change as a result. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 says, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. The gravity of that name could not be overstated. That God is now with us. God's not out there. God's not over there. God's not somewhere. But God is right here in our story. He's become a part of our brokenness. He's taken our brokenness upon himself. And he's begun to write a new story in our lives. About three and a half years ago, April 25th, 2012, it was a Wednesday at 3.30 in the afternoon. I was in my office and we got a call from our foster care agency. 
a few weeks before, my wife and I had signed our foster care license in, in Houston. Uh, and three weeks after, on a Wednesday, we get a call that says, there's a, there's a baby girl, and this is her situation. This is all we know. Are you interested? I said, of course. 5.30, they call back and say, we'll be there at 7.30. Be ready. So within a matter of four hours, you've had an expedited nine-month pregnancy, right? And suddenly, you've got a newborn, 7.30 on a Wednesday. Wednesdays are like the most normal days of the week, right? It's just a Wednesday. We'll never forget this Wednesday. 7.30 in the evening, the caseworkers come over with a fragile little three-day-old baby girl in a car seat, and they place her in our arms. And I'm telling you, that three-day-old baby girl ruined our lives in the most perfect and beautiful ways. We had all but established a pretty comfortable rhythm, pretty comfortable life. Our house fit three girls. Our cars fit three girls. We're almost maybe going to be out of the diaper phase soon, right? You know, you're with me on that. Like, please, God, right? And now we have a three-day-old baby girl that disrupts all of that in the most perfect of ways. She has since become our daughter some three years later, and she continues to ruin our lives just because she's a three-year-old, and that's what three-year-olds do. They break everything, right? (laughs) We realized that Wednesday night at 7.30 that we were being given on some level the privilege to do for her nothing less than what Jesus has done for us. I see your story. I see the brokenness from which you come. And we are going to change everything from here on out. This little girl has experienced more abuse and neglect physically in nine months pregnancy, three months on this earth than most of us will in a lifetime. And suddenly she's placed in your arms. And let me tell you, no matter how comfortable your life is, and ours was pretty comfortable, You cannot hold the tragically abused story of a three-day-old baby girl in your arms and not be completely wrecked by it. Since that time, she's never left our home. She's since become our daughter. And there has not been a day that's gone by where my wife and I haven't paused and considered on some level, where would she be? What would she be doing right now? What would she be eating? Who would she be playing with? Where would she be sleeping? All of these scenarios play out in your head. What would her life look like right now had we not been given the overwhelming privilege for our stories to become one story together and let's start writing a new one and I think in all of that in light of the gospel and the frame of the gospel and in the reflection of the gospel we're all on some level compelled to step back and to consider where would I be right now had Jesus not at just the right time interjected himself into my story and began to write a new one Most of us in this room would say, I definitely wouldn't be in this room. I certainly would say I wouldn't be married to the woman I'm married to. I certainly wouldn't be standing up in front of you today. Where would I be had Jesus not? Our answer to that question becomes the framework upon which we not only celebrate what Jesus has done for us, but we are compelled to demonstrate that into the lives of those around us. He pulled us out of a broken story by first being pulled into a broken story. Taking that brokenness upon himself, it means that we can't engage in this and still maintain our own personal level of comfort and convenience. Like we want to adopt and we want to foster, but we also want to kind of maintain our own, our own little safety bubble. No, it's impossible. That the story of the gospel is that Jesus, who was rich in glory, took on uh, the poverty of our sin so that we who were impoverished in our sin could experience the riches of his glory. It's this great exchange that I willingly give all for the sake of a child and I count the cost as absolutely worth it. 
that when I weigh and balance the life and the soul of a child versus the cost that I might have to incur in order to become a part of that child's story, the child always weighs, it comes out more valuable than any cost that you could ever lay before us. Money, time, sacrifice, convenience, the kid is always worth it. Let me end with this. Orphan care, foster care is a deeply spiritual battle that demands you and I stand for justice at all costs. We see the visible picture. We see the numbers. We see the kids. We see physically the stories. But there is a grander, more unseen story that's playing out in all of this. And it's the story of an enemy that wants to steal and kill and destroy that which God created to be good. And it's a story which demands that people like you and I, who have had justice fought for and won and secured on our behalf, would be willing to stand in the midst of a spiritual battle to seek justice on their behalf. Because if not us, then who? And if not now, then when? It was trial day for this baby girl that we would ultimately adopt. It was the day that the judge would order who would retain rights over this child. Unfortunately, mom had all but been removed from the situation just due to her own issues. And dad was given his day in court. In front of the judge, they obliterate him and they demonstrate why he's unfit and incapable of caring for a child. And then they call me to the stand. And I'm now standing in front of dad, beside dad in front of the judge. And the judge looks at me and says, are you the foster dad? Yes, sir, I am. Do you love this baby girl as if she were your own? Yes, sir, we do. And then his final question, he says this, I'll never forget it. Do you believe it's in the best interest of the child for the father's rights to be terminated? Now, mind you, he's standing right here. He's not happy about all that's taking place, and he shouldn't be. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This guy is supposed to be caring for this baby. That's how it's supposed to be. But here we are. In that moment, I had two words flood through my mind, and it was words that came from passages like 1 John that says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Or in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where it says, there's one God, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. As I stood before the judge, this idea of Jesus being our advocate, Jesus being our mediator, was no longer just words on a page or theology to be studied, but it was something to experience in a very real, rich, thick, tangible way in that courtroom. The tension of the unseen battle, the spiritual battle existing in that courtroom that day was real and thick and alive. And here I am standing as an advocate and mediator between this child and this judge, She has no idea that any of this is even transpiring. The most important day of her life that she's completely oblivious to. She can't stand for herself. She can't speak for herself. She requires that someone stand and mediate and advocate on her behalf. And I realize in that moment that in large part, this is what the spiritual scene in heaven looked like at the point of our salvation. That you and I were ushered before the judge and the judge looked down and we were condemned in our sin, but Jesus stepped in And the judge says to Jesus, do you believe it's in the best interest of Jason for the enemy's rights to be terminated in his life? And you can imagine Jesus without hesitation saying, yes, sir, I do. And I accept all responsibility for him from this point on. That this is a deeply spiritual battle that demands we stand for justice for their sake just as Jesus has stood for justice for ours. Now, let me be very clear as we close. This, the enemy in that courtroom that day was not biological father. He's not an enemy. He's not a demon. He's not a villain. He's a broken human, desperately in need of redemption. There is a grander, more unseen 
battle that's taking place with an unseen enemy, and his name is Satan, who wants to steal and kill and destroy the life of this baby girl, just as he has up to this point successfully done so in the life of her biological parents. We don't stand against delinquent biological parents at times. We don't stand between a broken governmental system. We stand against an enemy that wants to steal and kill and destroy the lives of these kids. And if you and I, church, are not willing to stand for them where Jesus has stood for us, then the question remains, who else will? And if not now, then when? To advocate and to mediate on their behalf, and in so doing, to fight the real enemy of Satan, and to put the true hero on display. Not us, but Jesus. This is the framework in which orphan care exists, and this is the picture of the gospel that orphan care puts on display in a pure and undefiled way. So I'm going to close in prayer, and I'm going to have to just pray for discernment and wisdom for us to begin to consider on what level and in what capacity can I play a part of this larger story. We're not all called to do the same thing, but we are all certainly capable of doing something. And maybe this morning it's time for you to say, I know what it is, and it's time for me to do it. So let me pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth, the relevance in our lives. We don't make the Bible come alive. The Bible is alive. We don't make the Bible relevant in our teaching. The Bible is relevant. And so we thank you that it meets us exactly where we are. It speaks to us. It encourages us. It challenges us. And so I pray for wisdom, Father. Pray for wisdom and discernment as to how you would have us respond that collectively together the body of TBC can be known as a body of people who work together for the sake of putting the gospel on display in the lives of kids who are marginalized and oppressed and abused. So give wisdom and clarity and discernment to each one of us individually, but then to also all of us collectively as a body for what that might look like here through our community. Father, we pray for those in the room that the last thing they need to hear is orphan care. The last thing they need to hear is go stand on behalf of these kids. The first thing they need to hear is that Jesus is the kind of Savior that sees you where you are and comes after you and meets you where you are. And so we pray for those in this room this morning that need to finally let him get them. That maybe this morning they would do that for the first time and come and share that down front with someone. So Father, we pray for your wisdom through your spirit. It's in your name that we ask all these things. Amen.